This is the Sustainable Goat Podcast. We look to nature for how we should interrelate to the world. All the answers are within nature if we take the time to listen. But what we have to find is a reasonable way how to handle plastic. You know, consumers expect more. They're expecting brands to be more sustainable. They're choosing sustainable brands. These are the stories and ideas from those that will define a generation. I'm your host, Steve Kassinem, and this is our planet in focus. I wanted to start with just, yeah, a little bit of your background. Where was your first, like, I guess, connection with nature where you're like, hey, this place is sweet? The first connection with nature. I remember a handful of times when I was in my youth traveling in Northern California. I forget the name of the place, but I went on a family trip on the coast somewhere way north of the bay. And I just remember being on the beach and like noticing the shells and then like being in the foothills of these mountains. I also spent a lot of time in the North Bay growing up in Santa Rosa and would like adventure out there with my sister and cousin. And I think that in addition to some camping trips with my family when I was young and just really learning like, oh, wow, I love being barefoot. I love being around these big trees. And I went to some summer camps when I was young at like I think it's called Big Basin and other areas in the Santa Cruz Mountains that just, for me, felt like foundational connections with nature. What do you find so inspiring about it? Because, I mean, the barefoot thing, I think, is so interesting because, you know, a lot will say like, hey, your connection with nature comes through barefoot. And people are like, no, I wouldn't be barefoot. It's pokey. It's all this stuff. But it's like, there is something cool about that experience. Like, what is it for you that kind of, is it the trees? Is it the shells? Is it diversity? Or is it just all of it kind of bundled in one? I think it's all in one, but I think it's really the connection that is both. I mean, it's on all levels, right? It it starts with the physical connection. That's whether just walking outside, being barefoot or hugging a tree, so to speak. But the connection is also emotional. It's also mental. And it can certainly be spiritual as well. Like when I tap into those levels nowadays, it's, it's a reprieve from the things that we were talking about just a minute ago about the city and, you know, the hustle and bustle that, you know, our modern society lives in. So that mental connection of like reminding myself, like, Oh, I am like part of this water. I'm part of this earth. I come from it. And like, now I can be connected back with it. I think a lot of our cities and development have forgotten that. And we're starting to remember that connection, which I think is a key element in, you know, the sustainable pathway, but so yeah, I think the connection touches on all of it. It's physical, it's mental, emotional, and spiritual for me. Well, and how'd you end up going to Arizona State? Because I mean, I kind of ended up going because it was a buddy of mine was like, hey, it's a great university. It's, it's you know, a lot of sunshine. It's really nice. And, you know, let's give it a shot. What was it kind of for you to find that space at ASU, especially with, you know, growing up more closer to the forest and the ocean? Yeah. You know, the end of the story is I ended up choosing a name out of a hat and it said ASU and that's, that's where I ended up going. But the, <laughs> the backstory was a lot of lead up in, I know I wanted to go to a big university. I know at the time I was very into sports and I wanted to go to a school that had really good sports and like a good football team and that type of culture. And, you know, to be honest, as an 18 year old, I was also really into partying and I wanted to go to a big school that had a good social life. You know, I could have a fun time and get a good education. My stepdad suggested I check out Arizona State University because he went there and he was an alum there from late 70s or early 80s or whenever. So I put it on my list and checked it out. And when it came down to it, I was deciding between ASU or DePaul University in Chicago, which, you know, ironically, their mascot's the Blue Demons and ASU's the Sun Devil. So I like to joke that either way, I was going to go to hell for uh, for, for college. But when I toured DePaul, it was in late March and there was a blizzard. It was 22 degrees and wind chill of, you know, 13, just miserable growing up in the Monterey Bay area. And when I went to tour ASU earlier in that fall, it was the weekend of Halloween in late October and it was 98 degrees and I was in flip-flops and shorts and I loved being warm, but ultimately I couldn't decide. And my mom ended up hiring like a advisor, you know, student advisor to help me as my 18 year old mind, you know, had trouble making a decision. And she literally wrote on each paper to Paul and ASU crumpled it up and put it in a hat, shook up the hat and was like, just pick one. And I just picked one out and opened it up and it said ASU. And the feeling I got was relief because I was like, Oh, thank God it wasn't to Paul. But I didn't know that until I chose it. It's like the theory of like, just flip a coin and you'll know what you want when the coins in the air, right? Oh, I hope it lands on heads. 
So that's how I ended up choosing it, but it already fit into a bunch of categories of good business school, good social life, had good sports. I mean, it was a large university and something that I wanted to go into after, after being in a very small high school. And it was very different. It was far away from home to, uh, you know, be away from my family, but close enough that I could, you know, take a two hour flight and be back for any holiday or any weekend. So it fit everything that I wanted and needed. Yeah. That's an amazing story, by the way. <laughs> Literally <laughs> just like went for it. Yeah, I think what, what's so interesting about it is like that it was the, I don't know, growing up the Bay Area also is like, it was such a difference of how you live the year though. I mean, like the winter, it, weirdly people still, it's still a little cold in the winter, but like you're the time of like actual heat and the desert lifestyle is actually completely different. And not to mention though, the, the beauty of the sunsets and I mean, there is something about the desert sunsets that literally it's just so unique and really, really cool that I found just like a love for it. Cause I started doing athletic stuff as well. And so I'd go on like a long bike ride through, you know, East of Tempe up into the mountains and stuff. And you just see this like beautiful, beautiful landscapes. Yeah. What kind of kept you in Arizona? Yeah. Nature was part of it for sure. And it's funny you mentioned the sunsets. I would, um, you know, I'm still close with a couple of buddies from high school and I would send them photos of the sunsets when I was, you know, freshman, sophomore, junior in college. And then be like, what's up with all the sunsets? And I was like, they're just different out here. They hit different. <laughs> and it is something about the desert sky and the way that the clouds form. And, you know, of course, you know, there's the element of pollution in the cities and whatnot, but it was just very different than the sunsets out there. So what ultimately kept me out in Arizona, in Tempe and now Phoenix was that I love the nature and there was a lot to explore. I fell in love with the desert. I also developed a really strong network. So strategically, as I was starting my career, it made a lot of sense to stay out here. It wasn't until really my last year at ASU that I decided I was going to stay. I thought I would always leave because I oriented towards the city of Tempe as a college town and you know a party town, which it served that purpose for me during its time. But as I began to mature and look at, okay, what are my career options? I thought that I would want to go elsewhere. Maybe I did want to go fulfill my dream of going to Chicago or going to the East Coast. But ultimately, what felt right in my heart was staying and continuing to work on the projects that I was working on, which you know at the time was the startup that has now become Greenlight Solutions Foundation. I was in it as a student group. And uh, I also had another kind of quasi startup called AZ Food Hub with a good friend of mine. And we just had so many connections and it made a lot of strategic sense. Uh, you know, the questions of what am I going to do? Where am I going to work? How am I going to support myself and, you know, be financially sustainable on my own? I had a great network in Arizona and I would have had to start that network over if I went to any other city. Plus I loved it and I had great friends here. So all of those factors combined, it was a really easy decision that kind of decided itself that I would just stay and make a life and a career here in Arizona. Nice. Well, and then you started working for the city of Tempe too. And like, what was that process like to kind of see how municipalities work? Because I think part of the context of a lot of this is the fact that like Arizona states are, you know, considered one of the top schools in the world when it comes to sustainability research and sustainability solutions. And they're kind of a hub for that because it's almost out of necessity. I mean, it's in a very specifically warm place in a place that it is experiencing a lot of change very quickly and the adaptations involved kind of need to go with that. Where did you kind of find that balance of how municipalities actually play into that picture? Because ASU is pretty much Tempe. It's like such an economic hub for that entire city. Yeah, it definitely is. We like to joke that ASU is more of a business than a university, but, and also like, you know, if it wasn't for ASU, Tempe wouldn't be on the map for what it is. Tempe started with the Hayden family, the Hayden flour mill and the railroad that ran right through the city that helped a lot. But really it was the university that brought a lot of knowledge and energy to the area and really put Tempe on the map. So yeah, a few years after I graduated, you know, I worked at a few different nonprofits, was in the process of starting my own and was curious, I guess, and, you know, interested in learning more about municipal sustainability. So I ended up applying for and getting selected to sit on the Tempe Sustainability Commission, which I believe they've rebranded to the Sustainability and Resilience Commission. It's a volunteer commission that essentially meets to inform city council as subject matter experts in sustainability, sustainable development, resiliency, 
um, everything from water to extreme heat to equity and access to resources. So my intention with joining the commission was because I wanted to learn how does a city become sustainable? Because through my education and learning about sustainability, it really came down to, okay, well, sustainability is about people. And well, from our perspective, right? That's an ethnocentric mm-hmm. perspective. It's about people. Of course, it's about the environment and society, but ultimately people have a massive, massive impact on the world. And we create societies and we create economies that have impact on the environment. And you know, we create this whole system. And then learning that most people live in cities, you know, it was just in the last few years, we crossed the threshold of more than 50% of the world's population live in a city versus a rural environment. There's a lot of impact and positive change that needs to come through cities that can come through cities. We can look at like all the innovations coming out of the Silicon Valley and, you know, the tech boom of the sixties and seventies and whatnot. And now that more people are moving to cities, how do cities become sustainable? Particularly how do cities in a desert become sustainable? Because I think it's ironic in a way to be studying and practicing sustainability here in the desert, which is arguably one of the most unsustainable places in the country. You know, we can get in the water and on all that jazz later. But for me, it was, I had some connections and some colleagues and friends that were on the commission and I wanted to essentially join them in that conversation and learn for myself what it takes. And in that process, we ended up passing the city's first climate action plan, which was a huge step forward for the city of Tempe and, you know, was one of the most, I think, progressive plans in the state and other cities have since followed suit with their own plan and, you know, Tempe's continuing to act and to work towards a sustainable future. But I ended up serving on the commission for, uh, I believe, close to three years. I off-boarded last year. I sat in the vice chair role for a while. And then um, ultimately, my passions and time was pulled elsewhere. And I, I decided to depart because I felt like I had accomplished what I had set out to accomplish, which was learning how cities do this and how they operate. And ultimately, there's a lot of different ways that cities can be sustainable, but it really comes down to interdisciplinary or like departments communicating with each other because sustainability doesn't operate in a silo. It can't just be the office of sustainability and resiliency. They have to be talking to water. They have to be talking to streets and transportation. They have to be talking to the city planner because ultimately it's, it's that comprehensive approach that makes a idea or a strategy or a city sustainable. So Mm. where do you start in that process? Is it like, cause I mean, they're, each one kind of is a priority, so to speak. And so it's like, where do you kind of start in that process? Because I mean, sometimes the city's already established. And so it's like, now how do we operate within this already existing box? Or do you have the opportunity to kind of now any future development falls under this? Well, I think it's both in that, like, yeah, all the cities currently exist. And some of them are thinking about things more so than others. But where we started was with stakeholder engagement. So we would host public forums and invite out, you know, various well, it was open to the public, but we would invite various organizations or, or specific people that are specific community groups or neighborhood groups or HOAs. And, you know, we'd have these big whiteboards and sticky boards and sticky notes and, you know, be like, what do you want to see in your neighborhood? What do you care about when it comes to water? What's important to you when it comes to safety on the streets and transportation? Like, what is your vision for Tempe in 2050? And we gather all of this information and data and essentially synthesize it. And to the best of our ability and knowledge, take that input from the public and make a plan for it. Because ultimately, you know, the city is public servants, so they serve the public. And then the job as commissioners on that sustainability commission was to be that liaison, to talk to the people that are living in the city and, you know, everyday people that just live in Tempe and communicate what they want and then use our background and expertise in sustainability and say, this is the best plan This is how another city has done it. Or, hey, no city has done it this way before. We should do it this way. And then make those recommendations. And then what happens beyond that, you know, it's out of the commission's control, whether the city council likes it, even discusses it or funds it or to what extent. But it always started at the ground level with stakeholder engagement and talking to the public about what they want in their community. Oh, that's huge, though. Because, I mean, I think a lot of the thought process around, you know, whether it be the urban planning side of things or you know, sustainability in your own community, a lot of it, you know, they'll say, do what you can as an individual, but like, what's going to happen is what's going to happen. And I think the idea is that a lot of people have been thinking, you know, top down of like, well, somebody's going to tell us what the most sustainable thing is. But like, by almost flipping the script that you guys did of like, hey, what do you believe is what you need the most? And then actually synthesizing that data. I mean, you're getting the actual 
thing from the people who live in that environment. If they're like, hey, you know, we have water issues. We have um, issues with, you know, kind of keeping plants in our yard or being able to grow a garden or our energy costs or whatever that is. You guys actually know then what are actionable items. And I think that's part of what I don't want to say like shortcuts the process, but it definitely speeds up the ability to go into research the right way of like, what should we do next as a city and how do we spend our funds? Yeah, I think it grounds it in the reality of what people need or what people want. And sometimes there, you know, honestly, in my experience and perspective, sometimes there is a disconnect between like what in my experience as a you know person who has studied sustainability and worked in sustainable development for about a decade now from what I believe is best or what I think a city needs to do versus what the people actually want to do or what change they're willing to make, you know, changes around, you know, a simple thing that came up a lot in the city of Tempe was air quality. And an example that a lot of people don't think about is like burning fires in the winter. You know, there's a lot of fireplaces in some homes in Tempe and like we would have, you know, air quality groups that would complain about the air quality yet at the same time, there's the trade-off of, okay, well, are we going to limit people's freedoms to have a fire in their home or to have a backyard fire, you know, for a bonfire gathering or something. So every little thing has trade-offs and that's really the, I think the big thing to understand in like sustainable development is like, we can decide to do one thing, but it's going to be at the cost or expense or change of something else. And that's the whole conversation. And that's why it needs to be a conversation. Cause I mean, you know, just as much as I like the, the division or like, you know, people aren't on the same page exactly about what to do, or even if we should do something around sustainable development. I think I'm fortunate that I, you know, was educated in the ASU School of Sustainability and in that environment where it was rather progressive. ASU was the first school of sustainability in the nation. And I believe hundreds have come since then, but ultimately it's like, we can have conversations and oftentimes people wouldn't agree. So at those public forums, there was naysayers. There's people that are like, this is, you know, liberal agenda. This is not what we need. This is not what the city needs. We need to be focusing on this instead. And, you know, it gets complex, but ultimately I think for me, like what these bigger conversations come to is like, can we listen to each other? Can we understand other people's perspectives that may have a different opinion? Even if I think I'm right, cause I'm a sustainability professional, like everyone's opinion is valid whether or not their perspective is factually scientifically accurate is a whole other conversation. But I think those conversations like start with respect and with listening to one another and hearing each other out, but then having hopefully a fruitful discussion of somehow like coming to a middle ground understanding about what can we do now? What don't we want to do now? What is most important? And then, you know, from that, you know, to take it to the climate action plan, there would be priority lists or things that were most important obviously being like extreme heat and shade and like infrastructure in the city of Tempe and water, as opposed to like, you know, we're not concerned with sea level rise in the city, but a place like Seattle might be more concerned with that. So it's all place-based and yeah, it gets complex. I could go on and on. (laughs) So at ASU, I think that that's part of what I think the university encourages. I think just universities in general, they're going through a renaissance right now of like, one, you know, how do we continue to have students come to our university because you have, you know, the internet putting pressure on that. But you also on the other side of it is like, well, how can we empower the next generation to chase after what they want to chase after? And I'd say, you know, Gen Z and the ones after that, there is a heavy focus on what is the world actually going to look like and how can we help engage with that? We had another episode with a student at UCLA who like, he started an entire organization around, you know, data and research and figuring out that like, pretty much every single member of Gen Z wants to do something, but they just don't know how to actually engage, you know, who to listen to. They're not going to read the ESG reports. And so it's, I feel like the university progressive nature of, of ASU has kind of helped aid that in kind of leading the charge. Where's the university at kind of now in that journey, like in terms of the infrastructure of empowering the student and giving them opportunities? Yeah, that's a good question. You know, I can't speak for other universities per se. I'm happily in the ASU bubble, so to speak. So very biased from what you know ASU provides and does as an institution. But ultimately, you may be familiar with the concept of the new American university that President Michael Crow has been talking about and really bringing to life over the last two decades since he became president. And the new American university is all about access and equity in education. 
So, you know, part of the ASU charter talks about, you know, we're not measured by whom we exclude, but whom we include. So from that perspective, I think a lot of what the universities can do as far as being these conduits of like knowledge bases and like teaching people certain things is being relevant and getting educational access to people that maybe historically haven't had it or that it may be more difficult for them to have it to attain that level of education. And ultimately, I think the role of universities at large should be to create critical thinkers and ultimately problem solvers. I feel like we are in an age in human evolution where we have an incredible amount of problems. And that comes through the complexity of globalization and mass communication and things that generations in the past have never experienced before. So when we talk about, you know, the Gen Z's that are now like the youngest, you know, group in the workforce and the generations below them that are in high school and coming into college, I think society has always trended towards what does the youth want? And there's always been this narrative. We can even go back to like the you know, Vietnam War and the civil rights protests and who was driving that was the young people. It's always been the young people driving change, which I'm fascinated to experience what my lived experience is like as I get older, you know, in the next few decades to see how I feel and like how I relate to the younger generations. I think ultimately universities should exist to just empower people with knowledge and what they do with that knowledge should be based in what solutions are needed for society. You know, I think a lot of this comes from my background in sustainability, but also, you know, with the perspective of the College of Global Futures, a relatively new college within ASU is all about thinking about the future. Like, what does the future of the world look like? That's what our scientists and professors study and like teach about and and work towards. And I think universities have always been relatively progressive or on the forefront of like social evolution. And I think now more than ever, it's become ever important to be aggressive in that. I think we're facing a lot of challenges, you know, the climate crisis being one of them, you know, there's mass immigration issues as a result of that. And there's going to be cascading effects that we see over the, that we're experiencing now, and they're going to continue over the coming decades. So I think ultimately it comes down to solutions. Like how do we create solutions to these problems? And universities are great ways to inspire and educate people to like get into the avenue of being solution oriented. Yeah, well, I think even as a student, it's a huge opportunity to be able to, I don't know, basically have an idea and explore it, like have the space to do it, work on a work with a professor on on being able to try and explore that solution. Because I kind of always been the type that I learn best by putting my hands into the mix, doing it, trying it, seeing what works, what doesn't work, and then trying to kind of see how you can iterate and get better. And I think that sometimes, you know, especially with where sustainability is right now you couldn't publish a book fast enough to actually educate on it. Like the rate at which technology is changing and the solutions that are needed are changing. It is very much a real time thing. And do you think that kind of ASU's approach is to kind of say, Hey, let's learn with you also, but also we have this, you know, extensive background of knowledge, research, backing, and also an inherent need because we're a university in the desert. Yeah. I think what I've seen a lot of, ASU doing is providing opportunities for students to try things, as you said, to experiment, to get their hands dirty. I know the program still exists. And when I was a student, we had a lot of, there was the entrepreneurship and innovation department that would provide students like funding to get their ideas off the ground, right? So there'd be application process, there's challenges, there's competitions, there's pitch competitions and tons of opportunities and tons of resources, a lot of free resources too. I like to describe ASU as like, it'll hand everything on a silver platter. You just need to go out there and take it and like access those resources because they exist. Right. I think, yeah, from a collegiate level, what I just find interesting is like the idea of a collegial environment is, you know, that community of minds coming together and coming up with solutions. And I think oftentimes when we look for solutions to problems, we look to the experts for it, but sometimes it's the people who have not ever been exposed to it that might see the problem differently. And I think what's so interesting is like almost ASU takes this young approach, so to speak, of like, let's try and figure this out and try and do it together. Yeah, I see that. And I feel that I think there's a lot of value in young, relatively inexperienced minds that, you know, may not be stuck in the weeds, so to speak. Like, like a person like even me, 
I may be. So I'm always talking to students or looking to what I can learn from people that are younger than me that have a fresh perspective. Right. And we can even take it further of like, like there's a lot that we can learn from children and like their innate ability to just play and just be present, which is something that somehow we are, you know, forced out of into adulthood. So yeah, I think also a lot of what I see is like with those resources and like what's what ASU offers on the silver platter is opportunities to try things. And with that, like, there's a sentiment, like, don't be afraid to fail. At least that's what I experienced because I had a couple of failed startups and then one successful one, but it's like those failures is, you know, I love going to the acronym of first attempt and learning of what failure is. So it's to be embraced. And I think ASU embraces the process of learning, knowing that the first time may not be the best, but to keep going and to keep trying and the way that they like interconnect different departments and really bring in like a collaborative spirit and the spirit of innovation. You've probably seen ASU is, you know, number one, the university in innovation for how many years in a row now. And I think that's because of their interdisciplinary approach, because of their partnerships, because of the unique ways that they provide opportunities for students to grow and learn, to become these problem solving, these creative problem solvers that society needs. So yeah, I think there's a lot of different approaches to that. Yeah, I remember like my official major when I started applying for jobs, which I ended up not even having one because I was just like, I'm going to do my own thing and and learn by failure. And you'd go through the failed startups for sure. But my official major was interdisciplinary studies, which any drop down menu of any other job applications, it wasn't a thing. It still isn't actually a lot of the time if you even just like explore like what your bachelor's could be in. Interdisciplinary studies doesn't even come up. It was something that ASU was pioneering because they were like, well, cross-disciplinary thought is really, really important in solving problems in the world. And I always thought that that was just a cool opportunity to be like, you could take, you know, cooking and business and put that together into an actual major. And that was what you studied. It wasn't just like I did science and I was also interested in cooking. You could actually make that a major. And then you kind of become an expert in both. And I think that that approach I think has stuck very much in the rest of it. So what did kind of you and your team now kind of do in the space of that global future side of things? Yeah, I think exactly what you're talking about is, is exactly what the world needs, which is people thinking cross-disciplinary and not being, you know, just an expert in finance, but you know, having a background of finance, but also knowing engineering or knowing, you know, global sustainability or whatever it may be, because, you know, as I spoke about earlier, like as the world has become more connected through globalization and mass communication, it's like everything is just kind of merging. And there's this, you know, I guess the concept of like the Renaissance man comes to mind, but like having a diverse background, I think is a great skill in today's world, especially when things are changing so quickly. The College of Global Futures specifically is made up of four schools within the College of Global Futures, which are the School of Sustainability, the School of Complex Adaptive Systems, the School for the Future of Innovation and Society, and the most recently added School of Ocean Futures. A lot of fancy words. Which is funny considering, you know, a desert school with an ocean focus. Yeah, I know. It was, it, it's super ironic. That came about from my understanding because ASU ended up actually purchasing or somehow taking over an existing school. It was the some school in Bermuda that, you know, is obviously in the middle of the ocean that studied ocean health and oceanography and whatever else it may be. I'm honestly not super familiar. I can't speak on it, but yeah, there's kind of these like inside jokes about the irony of, you know, studying about the future of oceans in the middle of the desert where Arizona doesn't have any touch point on the ocean, but ultimately it's all oriented towards, you know, the key word there is the future. And that's kind of the new concept that we've seen come out of ASU in the last five years is this concept of global futures. I think there's a lot of conversations now, you know, especially in sustainability, we look at a lot about, you know, we've heard the date 2050 or 2030 or 2100, right? What is the world going to look like at those dates? And I think something that's been relatively new and I say the last few generations versus, you know, all of human history is that we're thinking about the future and we're thinking about generations down the line. You know, obviously native cultures have thought this for a long time. There's the seven generations perspective, but as far as what I'd call Western society or like American European lineage comes from. It's been very just focusing on whatever is happening now. 
But we know now that we need to focus on the future and kind of backcast to the present to say, how are we going to be in 2050? What are those goals that we have? So ultimately, that's what the whole college is focused on, is creating a sustainable future and what that looks like through sustainability, through innovation, through adaptive systems, through technology. And honestly, departments keep popping up and like there's new areas of study and things that I certainly can't even keep my tabs on. It's an evolving, like complex metamorphosis of like, that is responsive to society. Like that's what the world is. It's always changing and evolving. And that's what the university is doing. It's just responding to that system that is changing and saying, oh, this is what we need now. Oh, we need to add this piece into it now. Or there's this innovative breakthrough that now is relevant. So you know, I guess to come back to the university perspective, I think another key thing is being responsive to society. And that's what the Global Futures College is doing. That's super cool. Because I, yeah, when you start thinking about sustainability as, you know, kind of a broader subject, it is a very complex system where things affect different things and it has a cascading effect. And thinking in systems, I think is one of the huge things. But yeah, I think one of the most exciting things about, you know, what GOAT is doing in this entire you know, space of sustainability is like, I think the most exciting part is that we're at the center of probably one of the most exciting times of human history in the sense of like, you have a collision of nature, technology, innovation, systems, humans, everything, products, energy, every single industry more or less is at an intersection right now with sustainability. And it's in one way, it's kind of like the Wild West where it's like, oh my gosh, let's try this. Let's like go for it and just see what happens. But at the same time, it's just fascinating to see where the innovations are in some of these areas. You have like algae technology coming out. You have measurable systems. You have you know ways where you can completely renovate a building where it doesn't even have a footprint. Like some of the ways that people are innovating different things is just, you know, for us on the GOAT side, it's fascinating. And I would imagine for you know, anybody working in any of those industries, it's also like this really cool, almost like thoughtfully creative space. And so that's where I kind of find that where ASU is kind of leading the charge in that is super, super cool. But I'd say like, is one of the, like, I've wanted to talk about water because obviously water, desert, I lived in Colorado for a while and Colorado river goes all the way down to Arizona. And a few years ago, even it was kind of like, Ooh, water's going to be an issue. And so like, what does that kind of look like, especially as like Phoenix is growing, like it's one of the faster growing cities actually in the country. So it's like, how do you not only it's challenge enough to manage growth, but then it's also another challenge to manage a, you know, almost a valve of water being turned off, so to speak. Yeah. Water is a hot topic. Whew. We need a lot of solutions and a lot of creative problem solvers in the space of water. I mean, I think you're exactly right in that there's the challenge in, I know it was definitely in 2018 and 2019. I think the trends continue, but Phoenix and I think five other suburbs, like for a few years in a row, we had six of the top 10 fastest growing cities in the country. I don't know what the stats are the last few years, but I've witnessed it. I mean, we see, I see high rises, I see cranes, I see developments, I see whole new developments, you know, in the outskirts and Avondale and Queen Creek and all these other places that it just keeps expanding and sprawling. And the troubling thing is that when the Colorado River was originally allocated, from what I recall from my research, it was allocated during a time when its flow was actually heavier than what it average was. So when they split up the units of water, they were splitting up water that didn't actually exist. And the flow was not actually as high as, <laughs> as what we measured it to be. So split between the seven states and the basin, yeah, we're kind of in a situation now where you know, do we have enough water? I think on the ground level, there's this rule about a hundred years water to have any new development, right? They have to prove that they have a hundred years worth of water in that space. And there's been allegations and reports that developers straight up lie about this just to get the development off the ground. And so I think ultimately where I kind of point my finger to is the lawmakers and the people that at least uphold the law and enforce it and or need to create new laws around it. To be honest, personally, I'm very disappointed in the leadership of the state of Arizona with relation to water and our perspective around water use. You know, I think a lot of people think about 
oh, how can I use less water, right? Let me take a shorter shower or, you know, let me turn the sink off when I'm brushing my teeth. And these are all good things to do. And they're also very minute things to do. Like in the grand scheme of things, that's a small fraction of the percentage of water. The municipal water use in the state of Arizona is something around 20% or so, whereas 70% of the water use goes to agriculture. And this is flood irrigation and farming. And oftentimes it can be, you know, I don't know if you've heard about the story about like growing alfalfa that's then shipped out of the country. There's concerns about like, are we exporting our water in a state that really needs water? So I think when I think about water, I think about we need massive innovative solutions and ultimately systems change with regard to how we use our water, how we relate to the water. I did read an inspiring story recently about the Gila River Indian community and them getting their water rights back. And and I think we have well, I know we have a lot to learn from the native indigenous communities that have stewarded this land for generations upon generations before these cities even had the names that we call them today. So for me, it's it's a lot about getting back to the roots of understanding our inherent connection to the land. And education is one piece of it. That's why I work in you know sustainability education, because I think educating people about it is key. And then that should hopefully trickle up to then making better decisions, making better laws and people acting accordingly. And, you know, we're going to have to make some hard decisions in the coming years. It's going to either be change the way we use water or people are going to have to start moving out of here because we're not going to have enough water. I don't really see it any other way. So yeah, it's a major concern. There's definitely some bright spots and tons of innovation and, and good things that are happening. There's always, you know, new things popping up. One of the most recent through the College of Global Futures is the Arizona Water Innovation Initiative, which is a $40 million grant, I believe, that was through the state of Arizona. And the college that, that I worked for has been, you know, essentially given the opportunity to allocate these funds in a way. So I've seen new job positions pop up, you know, having new colleagues come in and their, their job is specifically to work on water innovation solutions. There's new challenges coming up for students to come up with new ideas. So there's focus on it. There's money going towards the solutions of it now. And ultimately, I think we're going to see, I hope that we see some massive changes in the way that we orient towards water. I mean, it's not just in Arizona too, it's all across the country and water is life. And I think everyone needs to just remember that and be grounded in the reality that we are ultimately all here because of water, even on the earth. Like that's, that's why we're here, you know, when SpaceX and NASA and whoever else is looking for planets out there, what are they looking for? They're looking for water. So it's the necessary thing of life. Yeah. Exactly. Life as we know it. At least. Yeah, literally. And what we talked about earlier, too, of just like the idea that like, you know, humans are a part of nature. We're not just on Earth. We are a part of a natural system. We're another species that exists alongside the plants, the flowers, the other animals. Like we're part of a very complex system. And that system existed a very, very long time before we were actually even there. And so, you know, what can we learn from that? Because, you know, you do have things that just naturally balance the planet out. But when you have, you know, a sudden influx of a massive amount of humans that, you know, I think there is a root that needs to be in the education that we're part of a system. And how do you live with that system? And again, I think that goes back to indigenous culture for sure. Yeah, for sure. I think, you know, now we're getting into like, in my mind, what I find is like the philosophy of sustainability and a lot of my perspective, both through my professional life and my, my personal life and creative life is like reminding myself first and then others that like we are intimately connected with the earth and we've come from the earth. And I think bridging that gap that seems to exist in the mind of most humans is a critical part of creating a sustainable future is remembering that we are of the earth and like we are a child of the earth. And yes, we are a very unique species. Yes, we are an apex predator and we are another advanced animal that exists. And, you know, when we talk about sustainability, you know, a lot of people throw out the terms like, oh, save the earth, save the planet. Like, listen, planet's going to be fine. It's human society that needs saving. It's our food systems. It's our water supply, you know whatever. If Armageddon happens and the worst comes to worst and humans end up going extinct, the planet will be here. The planet will be fine. Most species will recover and evolve and the planet will keep spinning around the sun as it has done and it will continue to do that. So 
I like to bring the human element into it of like, we're not here to save the planet. We're here to save ourselves. And ultimately, you know, let's be selfish about it. Let's think about ourselves and our species as an entity of the earth. Because for me, I think that just like bridges a disconnect. You know what I'm saying? Of like, it's not about the earth per se. The earth is like, can be this intangible thing. But when I think about, oh, it's about me and my family and my city and my society, like that's what needs to be sustained. And it's based on So, Well, and I think your philosophy side of it, I want to really dive deeper on that because I think it's such a huge component of it. Because I mean, even if, you know, the first thought I think, you know, playing devil's advocate of like, you know, let's be selfish about it. It's like, well, cool. I'm going to hoard all the water for my family and like forget everybody else, you know, like that's the other side of it of like being selfish. And it's like, how do you, from a philosophical perspective, what's the balance? What's the medium place of like, how do you shift the mindset around that balance to actually strike of no it's actually about the global community not just like the selfishness of the own survival yeah i think you know to elaborate on that selfish word i think perhaps a better word is like making it more personal like when we say save the planet it's like okay like well i'm not you know it's this intangible thing but you know to bring it to a personal level of like oh save yourself save your community your city your country so getting into the philosophy side of it I think about the word union or unity a lot and just knowing that we are intimately connected and intertwined in a beautiful system called life where we rely on the water and the earth to provide food, whether that be plants or animals and, you know, even everything in our smartphone, the minerals that were mined, it's like everything comes from the earth and everything will return back to the earth. I like to bring up, there's this image that was forever ingrained in my mind from my first sustainability class at ASU as an undergrad. And it's three circles, each one inside of the other one. And the inner circle is the economy and the middle circle is society and the outer circle is the environment, right? So the environment, and this is what I like to kind of just spiel on people to like bring it all into perspective is the environment is the earth, the water, the wood, everything you can see that is you know, natural land. And then inside that, you know, from the environment, you know, humans come out of and we're able to create this thing called society, these communities and these families and, you know, these cities that we form in that society. And then humans get together in our little society and we created the thing called the economy. And we have to remember, we made all of this up. We just invented it and we created the economy. And now we're living in this system that we created. It's like a game that we made for ourselves to play. And a lot of people understand how the two outer circles and the two inner circles connect to each other. For example, we know that like, I need to drink water every day. I need to eat food every day. That comes from the environment, right? It comes from my garden backyard. It comes from the store. It comes from the creek, whatever. But the environment supports the society. And then we know how the society supports the economy, right? People think about the economy as like businesses and jobs and commerce and trade. And, you know, we have employment and jobs and businesses and partnerships that we create. And that's how the society creates the economy. And I think a big perspective here in sustainability is knowing how the economy is connected to the environment, that inner circle to the outer circle. That's where sustainable development comes into play, where we think about, okay, the resources it makes to build that little widget came from, you know, that mine in South Africa, that mine, that mineral or whatever it may be. So creating that connection for me is creating like unity mind and like understanding the union that we all have with the environment in our little economy that we made. And here we are in what we call our society in the middle. So it's about bridging this like mental gap and connection. And that's what I like to talk a lot about. (laughs) Well, I mean, we're essentially that conduit between it, right? If it's like, you know, to connect the economy to environment, we are the circle that's between that. And so there's, you know, I think if this circle of the environment is getting smaller, because there's not as many things available or not, you know, a balance that's actually struck for that to continue to naturally grow. Well, then it's going to put pressure on the other circles. And the idea is like, well, then how do you take the smallest one, the economy that we created and actually like feed that back into the bigger system to grow that again? I think a lot of people think rigidity when it comes to kind of our human systems, our economic systems, our natural systems, they think rigidity, right? There's only so much of this. There's only so much of that. There's only so much we can do so many hours in a day. And those are limitations. And I think that limitations do exist. But at the same time, 
those limitations can move and flow. It's kind of a fluid system. It always has been. And so when you start to look at it from that perspective, it's like, well, it can shrink and it can grow and it can shrink and it can grow. And where, you know, what stage are we at and how can we aid in that shrinking and the growth of it and kind of live more in that process rather than trying to drive that process in some ways. Right. Right. Yeah. And, you know, when you say like the shrinking and growing perspective, one of my other favorite quotes is we can't have infinite growth on a finite planet. Right. The planet is what it is. There's so much water. There's so much lumber. There's so many minerals, so much food. And yes, it's always evolving and always growing. But the way we've designed our economy, which again, we made up is that it's based on infinite growth. So like when I get deeper into the philosophy, then I actually get into like economics and like economic theory of, and I'm no expert in economics, not going to pretend to be, but my perspective is that we've designed a system that is inherently unsustainable because we cannot have infinite growth on a finite planet. So when we look at it from that perspective, I think we really need to come down to, and this is one of the pillars of sustainability, right? Is the economic pillar is how do we make a sustainable economy? How do we make an economy that is based on the environment, based on the natural cycles of nature, the seasons that we spoke about earlier, the water supply, the sunlight that we get, all of the natural materials. How do we build an economy that is actually sustainable, meaning intimately connected with the environment. And I think that's where some of the biggest change can't come. And for me, it's one of the most frustrating things to consider because I'm not an expert in economics. I'm not directly working on this, but I think we need innovative thinkers that can say, how can we change the system that we're in? We're currently living in it. How can we change this to something that is sustainable to something that, you know, maybe is based on ebbs and flows or based on the seasons or based on something that actually makes sense in nature? Because ultimately, we're going to be in that environmental bubble no matter what. And this is the world that we live in. So we need to build systems that make sense for that world that we live in. Yeah. When you start looking at like, I don't know how economic systems work, right? Most of it. And again, I'm not a financial expert either. But what I do know is that economic systems are meant for economic growth. Like the whole concept is that you build a partnership with a company or you produce a product to give goods to people. The idea is that you receive economic growth and the community can grow and everything grows, you know, indefinitely. A change to make, you know, economic growth to be centered more in a natural system, it's possible because we invented the economy, but that process may take longer than we want it to. And I think that one of the important things to really root a lot of this in is that you know, this is a process. It's a journey. It's not a one and done kind of thing. You do it real quickly and just on to the next because it's a system that's always changing. It's a system that needs cultivation and care and growth and patience. And I think one of the things that I think is a miscommunication is the fact that like there's an urgency to take action on something, but there also needs to be a patient approach to it because you want to be methodical about that solution with the sense of urgency needing the solution at the same time. And I think that balance is obviously super, super difficult to strike for sure. But it's knowing that like, if we're going to take a risk on creating a better natural system and a connection with the economy, it's possible that that economic growth can actually grow way more. It's just, you have to take that little risk in the beginning for the bigger type of return at the end, so to speak. And I think that people are wanting still that like quick return and they don't necessarily see that sustainability can be economically viable. And I think that's the biggest thing is like, it can be economically viable. Yeah, it definitely can be. I think it, it depends on reorienting around like what we deem valuable and what we deem important ultimately in our society. And you mentioned the short-term view, I think with sustainability, again, talking about thinking of, you know, the 2050, 2100 type of timeframes, sustainability is about a long-term view, right? It's the ability to sustain into the future. Not the earth, but society. But of course, society is based on the earth. So yes, all of it. So what I foresee in my you know optimistic utopian future is really a mindset shift and a change in the way of thinking around what is economic growth? What are we growing towards? What are we measuring? What is valuable, right? There's the proverb, I'm not going to quote it exactly, but talking about, you know, once there's no more fish and no more, no more trees, man will learn that we can't actually eat money. This thing that we've created to measure as value before we had currency, we had 
bartering systems and trade and things that actually had value. Like I'll trade you these furs for those fish and you'll be warm and I'll be fed. So for me, I see it's, it's actually getting back to the roots of like, what is valuable in, in life, right? For me, fresh air is valuable, water, very valuable, food, extremely valuable. Beyond that, you know, my relationships and family and friendships are valuable. I value money because of the system that I live in because I have to, to pay rent and to, you know, do the things that I do. But ultimately, again, we've created the system. So I think it's, it's a conversation around like, what do we actually value and what is valuable and how do we reorient around a way that makes sense for everyone? That's where like equity comes in of not just the developed world or not just, you know, the 1% or whoever it may be, but how do we make economic or societal growth, meaning growth and value, whatever we value, how do we make that accessible to everyone? I wish I had the answers to this, but these are the things that keep me up at night. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it's an important thing to think about though, because I think when it comes from, it's very much a personal pursuit. The value is inherently it can be communal, but it can also be individual. And it starts with the individual because they're a contributor to society. And I think that time to actually figure out what is valuable to you is like a very important question to ask because, you know, especially a goat, what we put in our kind of the pillars that we stand on is intentionality, circularity, and community. Because if you have those three things, well, it's going to create a really good system. Because you're always going to be intentional about the decisions you make. You're going to think about the community when you do it. And then you're going to think about the impact and the circularity of that decision, no matter what the decision is, whether it's sustainability or it's, you know, the decision to go for a walk for your mental health and what's the circularity of how that helps, you know, your energy levels to then contribute to a bigger system to, you know, it just kind of, it complements so many different things. And I think, what would you suggest for you know, people to start to explore that because I think it starts with the individual because you can have a community say, you know, I think one of the approaches that we take and go is that like, we're not telling people to change because you can't tell someone to change and expect them to change. You can only show them another path and then they have to make the decision. And so the thought is like, how do we just show the people who are truly incredible people doing incredible things where you're going to kind of want to almost like a flash mob, you want to join in. And so that's kind of been our psychological approach, so to speak, to how how we've started to grow the community around GOAT and sustainability is actually rooted in positivity and the empowerment of the individual. So where would you kind of say like someone can start in that personal pursuit of figuring out what is valuable? It's a good question. I think the concept of individuality is honestly a very American perspective. I had my mind sort of shattered open in a great way when I visited Japan earlier this spring. And their whole orientation is very much more communal. So for the sake of the society that I live in here in America, like we are a very individualistic society. But when I think about my life, like I'm very much dependent and interdependent with other people from the food that the farmers grow, that the people ship it to me. Like I'm not self-sustaining on a farmstead with my own well that I dug by myself. You know, even if you're on a homestead and you dug your own well, like somebody came out and dug your well, like you're dependent on that other person to do that. So I think what I would politely, you know, argue here is that we're not really individualistic at all and that we're actually deeply connected with every other person and every other system on earth, whether it be the water cycle or, you know, the seasons, like this is like what I mean when it comes back to like, we are part of nature and like, we are a very communal species relative to, you know, a lot of other species that, you know, animals and whatnot that, that exists, but the individual perspective from, you know, my experiences, it's a very American perspective to, you know, care for yourself and to, you know, be an individual and like, you know, be independent. You know, these are things that are like taught to us growing up. And, you know, just in my brief time visiting Japan, they're very communal species. They think about the family unit. They think about the community that, that they live in. I'm certainly no expert. I'd love to go back and become an expert, but I know that that there's different ways for humans to relate with one another. And I think that understanding our inherent connection is ironically a good place for the individual to start. It's actually to shatter their perspective that they are an individual and to like embrace like the interconnectedness and interdependence that we all have with one another. Yeah. Which I love that you talked about that because it kind of is, that is the shift in mindset in a way, because it does shift the decisions that you make suddenly become 
you know, the first thought is like my neighbor, my community, those outward circles as it goes, you start to then orient your decision making around that and that you don't want to hurt another person next to you, whether that be emotionally, physically, whatever it is, you start to actually care. And I think that one of the biggest thing is, is actually having the heart to actually care about something and believe in something. And I think we feel that really deeply, but I think we have a lot of a kind of a societal push to not. I think if you were to take a lot of people out in nature, show them a desert sunset or, you know, go out for that sunrise, right? It's always this like, it's an amazing experience for people. They get there like, wow, that was totally incredible. And whether they tell a bunch of people, post on Instagram or not, whatever that they decide to do with that is separate of the fact that in that moment, they probably actually felt something. And like, I feel like that is kind of sometimes the catalyst too, is like the actual feeling of connection, whether it be a community, nature, feeling like you're part of a system rather than just observing the system. Because I think that is also part of it is actually experiencing that system too, a little bit. And it's there. It's just the ability for us to interact with it. Yeah. I love that. It made me think about the the power of the sunrise (laughs) and what that can do for an individual. I think the concept of like rugged individualism is inherently an unhealthy and unsustainable one, you know, to go back to the, the concept of interconnectedness and interdependence. Ultimately the sustainability journey for an individual human is a personal journey of the soul or of the heart to like, remember our connection with the earth that native indigenous cultures like have never forgotten and that are trying to teach us is that we are children of the earth and like to remember that and like remember our earth as our mother as we would treat her our own mother our own family hopefully right really well and with a bunch of love and care so like deeper into philosophy then comes like just love that's what comes through is like i really feel society needs a lot more love and a lot more connection between humans, between groups, between neighbors, even we're very divided in this country. And, you know, there's a lot of reasons and forces behind that, that I don't care to get into, but one of the solutions is just remembering our inherent connection and like opening our heart to like connecting with others, to connecting with nature, taking our shoes off and walking barefoot, saying hello to our neighbor, these little acts that build up to, you know, hopefully a better life for everyone. Mm -hmm. What's kind of your hope for kind of, you spoke a little bit about like your utopian view of society, so to speak. And, you know, where do you see that balance in sustainability? Cause I mean, you do have kind of stuff changing. You have, you know, mangoes being grown in Italy, you have crazy stuff happening. (laughs) Where do you kind of see that balance being struck? I see the balance being struck everywhere. I think, I think sustainability is, something that every person needs to be mindful of, be aware of. But for me, there's not a single area. If anything, it's a balance in between what we orient towards in what we call economic growth or economic success balanced with what are the environmental realities or environmental constraints. And let's create a balance between our economic growth and our environmental resources. That's a really good place to start. Yeah. Do you feel like, I guess what just came to mind was just this idea of like, you know, they always say go with the flow, right? Well, are we more or less trying to fight a very, very like strong current the other direction by sometimes innovating our ways out of things such as like, should you be living in a desert with this many people? Or is this like one big thing saying probably don't? Is there like this certain balance of like, you know, go with the flow, like take a hint that maybe like, you know, we need to start thinking about our natural systems in a way where we do live with nature a bit more, but like, are we in some of the incredible innovations that have been happening, not to take away from any of those innovations and those brilliant ideas and those things that actually can solve a lot of problems, but it's almost that effort sometimes going into a place where it's like you're fighting against a current. Yeah. I think there's a lot of value to be said with going with the flow. And a lot of that for me comes to listening and opening my awareness to what is. I wonder often if we should be living here and if I'm going to be here long term. I think um, I know a lot of people in my network that have similar considerations, um, but there's also this fighting human spirit that is like the same spirit that, you know, made people 
cross oceans and go to the moon is like, okay, well, I can do this or I can innovate my way into this. So, you know, perhaps there's a balance needed between that, between going with the flow and also like rowing our boat, so to speak, in the river. Like we should still be going downstream and going with the flow, but we can navigate within that flow accordingly. So hopefully we have, you know, a little oar for our boat. (laughs) I I dig that. So, I mean, you've written a book too, and you have, you know, philosophy is kind of a root of what you do. What, what kind of brought you to just the excitement around that? Yeah, well, the book's a collection of poems that are inspired by nature called Mindscape of the Land. That was ultimately my kind of offering to the world of how I saw the world through the lens of poetry, specifically the natural world. I find poetry as a great like personal outlet. It's one of my greatest creative passions and something I find that can actually like create a lot of positive change. I mean, I've, I've read poems or we, we know poems of history that have change the world or change mindsets in that. So it's just one of my ways of expression. And actually it's a very cathartic way for me to process emotions of, you know, the challenges that I have every day, the sometimes the existential dread that comes with being a sustainability professional and knowing what I know and seeing what I'm seeing and knowing where I think we need to be and knowing where we're at. And, you know, for me, just writing it out, you know, journaling isn't enough. I just, you know, I I see the world through the lens of poetry and I think life is poetry. So that's, yeah, it's just a, it's a great creative outlet for me. So on that, where's your favorite place to enjoy nature? That's on the planet too, by the way. Oh, on the planet. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Favorite place, period. Wow. That's a hard question. I think anywhere where the water meets the land, specifically, I really enjoy Oak Creek in Sedona. There's a couple of really nice places that I've had some really meaningful moments at by myself and with loved ones as well. Salt River comes to mind as well. You know, being a desert dweller, I think about the rivers and the importance of them. Surprisingly, even growing up by the ocean, I'm not as inclined to say, you know, this beach or, or, or the ocean perhaps, because I feel more connected to the earth and the rivers that run through it than Mama Ocean, so to speak. But that's a hard question. I don't know. I don't right. feel 100% with my <laughs> answer. So that, that may change next week or next season. <laughs> well, and I will say I'm not encouraging, you know, more traffic to Sedona because there already is enough but definitely not yeah i hesitated to even say that <laughs> right <laughs> but there is something about you know just the area of the desert that i think is truly incredible like there's something that's unexplainable about it you can see a picture of it and it doesn't at all cannot capture it and doing media for as long as i've done media there are certain landscapes that you can't capture like there's just something about them that's truly special and so for me it's always a fascinating thing to try and you know, ask people, what is that place that does it? Because it is different for everyone. I mean, growing up next to the ocean, most people would assume, yeah, the ocean or this certain beach. And for it to be desert, there's something special about it that almost topped it. And maybe you can explain it, maybe you can't, but like it is. And that's the coolest part about it, I think. Yeah. The desert is inherently a mystical place. You know, as I said, that's why I fell in love with it and decided to stay here in Arizona. And I think studying and you know working towards sustainability here is ironic but it also kind of makes a lot of sense because if we can you know do important sustainable development here we can really do it anywhere it just requires a lot more innovation and creative thinking a lot of people don't know that the sonoran desert is the second most biodiverse region in the world second to the amazon jungle the amazon rainforest there's so many plants and animals that thrive in the desert so i think a lot of our you know when i talked about listening or learning earlier it's like how do we learn from the way that a saguaro cactus absorbs water in the monsoon rains and can sustain itself for the next 18 months if there's not another rain or whatever the number is and and all the species that find ways to thrive in the desert. So other species have done it, plants and animals, and humans have done it as well in the past, indigenous cultures and somewhat our modern culture. So there is a way. I think the desert offers a really harsh environment, but a really ripe opportunity to see how sustainable can we be? What does life in the desert look like? And I think the beauty just adds to, you know, an element that that makes it enjoyable to figure that out in the process. I didn't know that about the Sonoran Desert. That's wild. I mean, one of the things I found just so interesting about exploring Arizona when I was there was that you can literally, one of my favorite classes, it had nothing to do with my major, nothing to do with anything. I took geology and it changes the way you start looking at all rocks all around and especially in Arizona, you can literally see history. And it's that part was like incredibly fascinating. And it, it gave me this level that I'd never understood before. Cause 
you know, most of the time growing up, you know, next to any type of forest or trees, you kind of are like, well, how thick is this tree? How many rings? How tall is it? You're kind of like, oh, well, that's a good measurement of like history. But like, you know, the rock side is so totally different, but also equally as fascinating because it's like you can literally see what happened in the world way before humans were even here. And to me, it was just like almost inspiring just to see that. And that's what I've always loved about the desert. That and obviously the sunrises and sunsets, the colors are next level. It's incredible. Yeah. Yeah. You make me think about the Grand Canyon and, you know, all, all the layers and all the history there. And that's a whole other podcast. <laughs> 100%. Well, Ryan, thank you for taking the time. Seriously, I think this is a great conversation to talk about the philosophy, seriously, of, of sustainability. Because I think the philosophy and the way that we interact with nature, I think, is sometimes equally, if not more important than the solutions that we're trying to solve in the short term. Because it is that balance. You need both. But like the philosophy is the root of all of it. And I think that sometimes that gets lost in the mindset, in the culture, in society that like our own personal philosophy and our own guiding principles, our own journey of trying to figure that out in community is actually what also leads to progress too. So thank you for taking the time and just really excited to see what ASU's Global Futures Program comes out with too, because it's always been cool to see. And I, I went to campus in, I think it was like February or something. And I hadn't been since, you know, I graduated and it was, oh my God, it was insane. Just like the amount lot, of... Yeah change and growth but also the innovation associated with it is super cool like to know that there's separate buildings specific to construction on sustainability was so cool so thanks for just taking the time and next time i'm down we'll, we'll definitely have to hang out for sure yeah that sounds great thanks for having me steve appreciate it thank you for listening to the sustainable goat podcast i'm your host steve Cassinum. with each episode we can further define what it means to create a truly sustainable and resilient future. I think the new status is to show that, that you actually care. You want to drive change and you want to be part of a sustainable future. People fight for what they love. Let's really hold out for a small but significant shift in the way we live, we consume, and we plan our life. Join us at sustainablegoat.com.